Jim, you've had a little holiday. Not that you've been anywhere, have you? And you seem to have caught a slight snuffle. Well, I, yes, I have. I've taken a few days off. I've been out in the garden uh, clearing leaves from our oak tree, which is a uh, mighty oak tree in the front garden, which is brilliant. But it has dropped a lot of leaves, a huge, huge number of acorns this year. It's been a mast year, which means it's a, a real glut of acorns. A mast? Mast, M-A-S-T, yes. That's, uh, Ooh, I've heard a lot of that. Of, yeah. So every, every few years, there's a, there's a tremendous drop of acorns. Overproduces, I think, to compensate. But, uh, and you've but been gathering lucky. them up to, to, to feed to local swine? Or yeah, that would, be, that would be good. That would be good if I could do that. But no, sadly, they, well, they've been going to uh, composting sort of via our, our local council. Um, green, green waste recovery, which is great. But it just reminds me, I mean, we're very lucky to have a tree. We're very lucky to have trees in general, I guess, but such amazing things. And I reckon that uh, this particular tree is 120 years old and it's probably taking about a tonne of carbon out of the atmosphere in its lifetime. Probably more than that, actually, because it's such a big tree. But um, overall, you know, with, with about 2.6 billion tonnes of carbon are taken out of the atmosphere by trees, uh, which is a huge amount. Obviously, it's not enough to sort of solve the climate crisis, but it's a significant amount. And the sad thing, of course, is that about 90% of the forests that were around have, have now sort of uh, have gone. Uh, and we're continuing to deforest at a rate of about uh, the size of the UK per year, which is really astonishing, isn't it? And it's it's such a sad, sad indictment of, of how we treat treat nature. It's terrifying, actually. Something has um, got to be done about it, Amanda. Something's got to be done. Well, that's why we're here, because that's what Planet Pod's all about. Forcing Good. change, encouraging action and encouraging change. So, And actually, it's, it's interesting you mentioned trees, because that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today. Um, trees and forests generally across the globe. So um, we better get on with it, I guess. We had to, we had to, and I'll just uh, try to avoid the falling acorns and the uh, the leaves as they gently flutter yeah, to the ground. Do a hen- don't do a henny penny. We don't want that. But the end of the world is nigh, if we're honest. I know, isn't it, I know. The sky, sky is definitely falling in. Okay, off we go. Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Hello and welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Few things epitomise the challenge of tackling global climate injustice than the plight of our trees and forests. Whether it's ancient woodland, like Jim's Oak, being felled here in the UK to make way for HS2, the validity and necessity of which is a whole other programme, or the widespread destruction of the precious ecosystems in the forests of Liberia, Destroying woodland habitat is a totemic symbol of our disregard for and arrogance towards the planet's most precious resource. My guests today have both been at the sharp end of some of these battles, and I'm delighted to say they have considerable success in halting deforestation. Before joining Planet Earth as the head of the forest and climate team, Brian Rohan lived in Cambodia, where he headed a startup initiative linking private investment, conservation management and local livelihoods. He served as an advisor on land rights, natural resources governance and community livelihood issues. And he managed the Ministry of Environment's process to create Cambodia's environmental code. That's a pretty impressive CV, Brian. Welcome to Planet Pod. Thanks very much. It's great to be here, Amanda. Babette Brophy, also from Client Earth, joined the team earlier this year. She's a lawyer by training and has worked both in wildlife law in Namibia and Australia, and now works with local partners to conserve forests through strengthening laws and developing community legal capacity in Liberia. So welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me today, Amanda. 
So should we start with that big issue of deforestation? I mean, it's something that we hear about a lot. Um, people have very strong views about it, obviously. And we know that forests and trees are extremely important to our ecosystems and our planet. And something like, I think it's 80% of species actually live in forest areas. So, so just sketch out for us the challenge that you face at Client Earth when you're looking at tackling deforestation. Brian, let's start with you, as you know, as your head of the forest team. What, what is the size of the challenge? Well, I mean, honestly, it's massive. Um, there are a number of different ways you can slice it up in terms of statistics, but none of them are, are particularly pretty. Um, if you want to talk about uh, the fact that we're losing a forested area the size of the UK every year, that's pretty staggering. Another way of putting it is to say, well, is it you know one football pitch per second or is it one football pitch for every two seconds? Um, but the reality is we are losing our forests um, at, at, at a very desperate rate. Um, and as we lose our forests, we lose the ability of the, of the forest to store carbon. Uh, we lose uh, the livelihoods for so many indigenous people who depend on them. Um, and, and, and biodiversity is, is being completely decimated uh, in the process. Um, it's, it's, it's a tragedy that's unfolding before our eyes, and it has been accelerating over the last couple of decades. When you say lose our forests, we really do mean lose forever, because once they're cut down, that's it, they've gone. It's not like managed planting and we're getting the new trees coming through. This is this is sort of virgin forest and it's gone forever. That's right. That's right. I mean, this is this is this is the precious re resource that is uh, the wellspring of so much of the biodiversity on the planet, um, so much of the cleansing of the atmosphere, so much of the provision of, 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 of clean water resources. There are so many wonderful things that forests provide us. And when they're gone, they're gone. Um, yes, there is reforestation. Yes, there are initiatives to, to, to plant a trillion trees and so on. And, you know, I think Babette and I and, and, and everyone at Client Earth would say planting trees is good. Uh, but by no means is it a substitute for the hard work that we all need to do to save the forest that we've got. Um, it's a long conversation in its own right. But, um, you know, intact natural forests are, are tremendous carbon stores, are tremendous sources of biodiversity and so on. And reforested areas tend to be monoculture, tend to need a lot of external inputs in terms of chemicals and water and so on, tend to be much more uh, prone to disease, uh, et cetera, and so forth. So by all means, where there's been massive deforestation, let's replant. Uh, but priority one has to be conserving what we've got. And so where is the problem coming from? I mean, is this an economically driven problem? Because we, we do hear about things, you know, where people are saying, well, we, this is actually our land and our livelihood, and therefore we have the right to cut down the forest because it provides an income for us. So is it an economic problem or is it a social problem or is it a political problem? Maybe the answer is somehow all of the above. Uh, it, it, it tends not to be forested communities that, 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 that get their traditional livelihoods from forests that are the source of the problem. In fact, uh, you know, quite to the opposite, those local communities, those indigenous people, they, they know their forests well. They've been, they've been obtaining livelihood from their forests for generations, and they know that the forest is the, is the key to their sustainability uh, for generations more to come. Uh, so the, 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 the problem is when you have industrial scale agriculture moving into deforest land, uh, to create things like soy plantations and palm oil and, and, and cattle farming, just to name a few. Uh, the problem is when 
uh, governments declare protected areas and they want to remove those traditional communities from those areas and say, well, now we're going to manage it. But in fact, the governments don't have the capacity. There may be corruption and, and, and illegal logging activities that uh, you know, are, are able to establish in, in those kinds of situations. So um, it's, it's, it's a question of political will to really properly conserve what we've got. It's a question of providing the right kinds of economic um, realities on the ground, uh, starting with land tenure for those local communities so that they have you know, sufficient management rights and sufficient ownership and motivation through ownership to properly conserve their resources. Um, and it's a matter of valuing those local communities as well, um, who very often are, tend to be very disenfranchised um, and then marginalized in economic decision making. And that whole paradigm needs to be turned on its head because local communities, they're really the last best chance we have to conserve the world's forests. But Bet, that's where a lot of your work's been, hasn't it, with Glanteth? You've been working directly with local communities on the ground and particularly with the women in those communities. What sorts of things have, have you been doing? Um, well, I think we run quite a few different um, programs within communities in Liberia, um, focusing on you know that gender mainstreaming aspect. I mean, I think it's important to remember that women have a really unique relationship with forests. You know, they're very reliant on forests for nutrition, for medicines, um, and as a supplementary source of income. So it's important to make sure that women are involved in you know the forest governance process to ensure that those needs and those um, priorities for them are included in the management process. Um, and so a lot of our work kind of focuses on making sure that women are brought to the table. Um, I think, you know, Liberia has some important legal provisions that, you know, specifically provide for women's participation in community forest management bodies, for example. You know, one of them says, you know, one out of five of the team members must be a woman. But, you know, there's a real gap between, you know, bringing one woman to the table and then having genuine democratization of that kind of forest governance process and, you know, having equal representation, um, making sure that women's voices are heard um, and, you know, making sure that, you know, the social norms that have previously excluded them from being actively participating in, in those processes are revised and kind of developed so that women can play a greater role in forest governance. Yeah, because one woman at the table does feel a little bit like tokenism, doesn't it? And exactly. and presumably that woman is that single woman is also representative of a woman, which is a very difficult thing to do, but but is also quite lonely. So we'll find it very difficult to make the, her voice heard. So so what you're really looking at is a bit of kind of social re-engineering there. So people could say, is that appropriate? Is that an appropriate thing for a, for an outside agency to be to be coming in and, and making suggestions of that kind? Yeah, well, we're very mindful to make sure that we are providing the kind of legal support and legal capacity building that the community are asking for. Um, and, it, and it's great to, when we do run these women's sessions, you know, they're very discussion heavy. Um, and, you know, it is very much saying, you know, you, these legal options do provide for women's involvement. How does that make you feel? And they're excited. They are so enthused to be able to be part of this process of managing their forests. You know, they are working with them every single day. Um, you know, whether that is as, you know, a source of income or getting their food or medicines from that area. So they are really excited to be, you know, actively involved in that process. And so, yeah, obviously there are some concerns around, you know, changing social norms as an outside actor. But, you know, we are very conscious to make sure that we only provide the support that the communities are asking for. 
Yes, because for those listeners who might not be familiar with Client Earth, I mean, your whole focus is is a legal. You're an organisation of lawyers. who's about and and you know, as the name suggests, the the Earth is your client, and and it's about providing using legal frameworks, isn't it, to actually effect change. So, so the the element of sort of social engagement stems from that first principle of of, of working within and, and and for legal structures. I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, you've been saying that the women might, you know, engage in a livelihood from the forest. What kinds of things are providing that livelihood? Because if you're not chopping down the forest for the obvious things, to use the word, what kinds of livelihoods can forests provide? Yeah, forests provide a huge range of non-timber forest products that are really important to supplementing nutrition as well as income. Firewood is obviously an important component of that process, but, you know, the rates at which communities use them is quite negligible compared to the impact that industrial scale logging has on on these forests. So, you know, it's the community use of these areas is extremely sustainable. Um, And so that's why, you know, we really want to encourage that community management of forests rather than, you know, communities feeling like they are backed into a corner and have to just sell off these huge swaths of land over to logging companies to be able to make real use of them. So it's about actually living in harmony with the with the environment, isn't it? And that's incredibly important. But I guess we can't, I mean, you touched on it, Brian, really. We can't get away from the larger macro issues, one of which must be around economics. And I was interested, you know, thinking about your background around linking private investment and conservation management. I mean, how does that work? Because one would feel that those two those two drivers were perhaps working against each other rather than than together. You know, the idea of a commercial interest against with, with conservation. Yeah, yeah. I, I think very often that's the perception that you can kind of have one or you can have the other, but you can't have them both together. And um, and and we we don't see it that way, you know. And as Babette was describing, the the, the whole range of economic opportunities for communities. That, that they can generate sustainably um, while managing forests, that presents opportunities for local companies that have a certain sort of orientation to go in and work with those communities as well. Um, imagine a community that has a tract of a community forestry area of several thousand hectares or, or, or 50,000 hectares, whatever it may be, and they zone that out and they say, okay, we're going to, you know, you know, organize with a company for a sustainable bamboo plantation on one part of that. Uh, we're going to develop markets for some of the orchids and forest honey that we harvest, where we have certain areas that have special trees where you can extract resin and that's commercial viable as well. So it's a matter of a, of a more holistic and inclusive approach as opposed to, well, here's this sort of area, we're going to put the communities to one side and they can kind of, well, do what they want with that part of the forest. But over here, we're going to have real development um, and, and companies are going to do that. No, the communities and the private sector really need to be working together. And, and a very strong part of that is realizing that conservation is part of the overall management as opposed to, you know, conservation sits out separately by itself. No, the economic activity that provides income to the communities that can in part be used to conserve those areas that need to be you know, preserved for future generations. So it's, so it's the whole concept of a holistic system involving all the actors working towards the same objective. 
And are those investments relatively small scale? Because I can imagine there'd be quite a lot of pressure from big business and, and, and business lobbying, just as there is in, say, petrochemicals, you know, to actually come in and say, oh, yes, it's fine, we'll invest. But actually, you know, by investing in the back door, they then gain some control and you, you end up with a situation where the community's lost its, its own stake in the forest. So are those investments actually quite small scale private investments or are they bigger scale through international banks and things? Well, I, I would not... Um, you know, so try to say, well, you know, this is, you know, you know, large scale, you know, sustainable conservation and business development. The best examples um, tend to be on, on smaller scale where, where communities and companies get to know each other. They take the time to, to, to create joint management plans and so on. Um, and I, I think when, when things get up to a certain scale or perhaps there are, uh, you, you know, governments operating in a weak rule of law environment, um, then, you know, certain liberties can be taken and you know, communities may be living adjacent to a protected area only to wake up one day to find out that they're in the middle of a land concession and, and have no idea what, what has even happened, where that decision making came from, for example. And that's the kind of thing uh, that, 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 we're, that, that we're working to, to, to curtail um, and, and to create the models whereby the communities, through their capacity to manage and, and their ability to do business with the private sector, become an attractive partner for, for companies. And what can you do if you are a community and you wake up and you find that your forest has suddenly had a land grab from somebody else? I mean, Babette, what, what kinds of actions can, can the team at Client Earth and others take to, to help those communities? One of these initiatives that we've developed is the creation of these template contracts that communities can use to negotiate with companies operating in their areas. So, I mean, usually the companies will roll up and say, look, we've got a concession or we've got a right to log in this area. Um, here's our terms of agreement with how we'll use your land and please sign that. And so we've developed this template contract that they can use to negotiate, but kind of levels the playing field a bit more. Um, so that they can kind of say, okay, hold it there. Let's use our contract. Um, you know, it has provisions based, integrated into it that can provide for community development. Um, so, you know, if they say, okay, if you want to log out our forest, fine, but you need to provide us with, you know, some healthcare facilities, some educational facilities. Um, you know, we need a new well drilled over here. Um, and so they can kind of advocate for better rights for their communities, as well as better management of their forests. So an important provision within those template agreements is, you know, saving a certain percentage of that land just for the conservation of forests. And I think it's that balance of, you know, managing community development and utilization of their forest resources, um, as well as conservation and recognition of community rights as well. So it's important to have those kinds of frameworks to kind of support that negotiation process so that communities can advocate for their own legal rights. PlanetPod is sponsored by Akil Management Sustainability Consultancy, providing resources and support for all businesses to help them tackle their climate change challenges and work towards net zero. For more, visit akilmanagement.com. So you've given them the tools. Do you also give them the kind of training and resources and support 
to be able to, because I would imagine if somebody turns up outside your, you know, your, your community center with a huge, great, you know, logging machine and a truck and, and a chap in a suit saying sign here, you, it could be incredibly intimidating if you're not used to having those kind of conversations. So, so do you find that you're able to give the sort of support to the communities as well? Yes. So we've, in addition to developing the contract templates, we've also developed negotiation guides. Um, and as part of our legal working groups, we, you know, discuss the provisions of the contract so they know which kind of provisions that they need to really focus on in the negotiation process. We provide them with examples of negotiation tips. Um, and we also do, you know, role-playing exercises as well so that, you know, they're practiced in playing hardball if they need to. Um, and, you know, I think we've developed that relationship with communities so that they know that if they are aware of some kind of upcoming negotiations that will take place, they can, you know, speak with us or um, our in-country partners, um, heritage partners and associates um, to kind of discuss that process and, and speak that through as well. But yeah, you're absolutely right in terms of that intimidation factor being very problematic. And I think it's a lot of our focus on that legal capacity building is, you know, focusing on leveling the playing field, making sure that communities understand that they are well within their rights um, and how to advocate for their own interests as well. I guess it, the that makes me think of a kind of question is, while that all feels absolutely the right thing to be doing, is it fast enough? Because we know that, that law is a notoriously slow at times process. Um, and, and however many people you've got on the ground, you know, empowered and, and supported, you know, deforestation is happening at that horrific rate that, that Brian mentioned. I mean, is it enough? It, would we not be better off having more direct action, Brian, actually having people out there with, you know, with, with banners and chaining themselves to trees and things like we have at HS2? I mean, is it is it enough to, to use the law as an instrument to change? Well, I mean, we we really do believe that the law is is, is perhaps the best tool of change. But indeed, I mean, what you say is, is correct. You know, it, it, it can sometimes take years for certain processes. And certainly when you're talking about building legal empowerment, when you're talking about, you know, bringing traditionally disenfranchised communities into the economic and political discourse about how to manage resources, that's going to take time. You can say it's generational. Um, and at the same time, you know, we've been talking about this, but Beth and I and others in the team, what are we still seeing going on day to day? The world's forests are disappearing. So, so we've actually been talking among ourselves and, you know, looking at our strategic approach and realizing that while on the one hand, we very much need to continue this kind of work. We need to keep that empowerment process going. We need to keep the local framework development work um, at the core of what we're about. But we're also now launching a forest conservation legal defense fund to, to, to help those communities uh, when, when the, the, the templates and the capacity building isn't enough and the forces are overwhelming, they need external legal support. Uh, when, when there are pressures to turn a, a, a parcel of land in Indonesia or Brazil into a concession, into a palm oil plantation or whatever it may be, we're looking for different kinds of legal theories where we can actually bring you know, direct legal action um, or, or legal action in collaboration with local lawyers. And this is, you know, this is what we hope will be a more direct and, and shorter term uh, intervention in order to conserve the world's forests in the shorter term, while the longer term capacity development has a chance to, to really take hold. I would have thought that would be absolutely essential because we've seen the disregard 
for for law across across the globe, but particularly in the states and and you know and others aping that approach that the, you know that you can just overturn laws that you don't happen to like. So I mean, I would have thought that we need that kind of direct action fighting fund, um, you know, as quickly as possible, and presumably a lot more people on the ground. I mean, are you engaged in a massive recruitment campaign at Client Earth because you're going to need a lot of bodies to, to, to fight these various interests across the globe, because we aren't just talking about one set of forests in one country, are we? We're talking about a global problem here. To, to, to put it mildly, and, and, and the way we work, in fact, right now, we are in the process of, of upscaling so that we have more in-house legal capacity for these kinds of country-specific legal actions, and very much um, uh, you know, an essential aspect of how we do this work is by collaborating with local lawyers, uh, you know, Brazilian legal professionals, Ghanese, Ghanaian legal professionals, Indonesian legal professionals who, who know their legal landscape, um, know the political economy of the situation, and with whom we can collaborate to do the best effort that we can to get the best legal solution for the particular case that will also have, let's say, some kind of informal precedential you know, so, so sort of aspect in terms of, you know, demonstrating respect for the law, demonstrating the rights of those disenfranchised communities, demonstrating the need to respect the laws that lead to effective conservation policy. And all that coming together to empower the communities, because you, as you were saying, Babette, I mean, it's the empowerment of the communities that that's so important, isn't it? And and particularly we've seen when, when you know, just going back to the gender issue, but I do think that, you know, gender and climate justice are so intermeshed. I mean, it really is an intersectional issue. When we've seen women gathering together and making their voices heard, as we have in parts of Europe, you know, it, it's a really, really powerful tool, isn't it, to actually affect change? Yes, absolutely. And I think making sure that women's voices are heard, whether it's in Europe or whether it's in West Africa, is extremely important. Um, as I mentioned before, women have that unique relationship with forests and the way that they use their forests. Um, and so, you know, it's not so much just of keeping forests standing it's also you know ensuring that the way that they utilize those forests is still available to them as well um and so i think you know as the discussion progresses making sure that women's voices are at the table is always going to be a very important priority have you seen any anything change as a result of the pandemic because we have heard that that you know the world's attention has been focused elsewhere and so there's been perhaps more acts of deforestation and certainly more acts of of climate injustice and climate crime as a result of um of, of the people not being having their eyes on the ball because of the pandemic is that something that you've experienced at plant earth i i would say sadly we have seen that um while it's been nice to see you know maybe some of us have seen on social media you know, images of dolphins in the canals in venice and sort of wildlife re-emerging and so on uh, really the prevailing trend has been that you know while local communities have been sheltering in order to you know protect themselves uh, from the pandemic while rangers have not been going out to the forest to conduct patrols and so on the illegal loggers have been busy at work uh, the poachers have been busy at work so um, it, it, ha it has not been a good time for um, you know wildlife biodiversity and, and overall you know forest conservation uh, by by no means at all um, and at the same time also we've seen it you know for a number of local communities uh, that have worked very hard to establish livelihood projects 
um, you know, the, the, the economy has, has been so dis- severely disrupted. Um, certainly things like, you know, ecotourism uh, that might have been able to sustain a community that had, you know, nearby waterfalls and recreational opportunities to attract tourists. Well, of course, that has really dried up uh, quite dramatically and uh, forcing communities in some instances to seek out bushmeat and so on just in order to sustain themselves. So, um, so the pandemic has, you know, by all means created some very serious problems and um, it will be very important to rebuild as soon as we possibly can. And are you hopeful from the signs from the states? I mean, obviously, if, you know, once Biden's allowed to occupy the White House and rejoining, you know, um, the, the Paris Climate Accord and, you know, the focus here in the UK on COP next year, are you hopeful for the future of the forests? Or or is this does this feel like the sort of, dare I say, of fighting a losing battle? I, I, I'm extremely hopeful. Um, I mean, certainly, you, you know, I, I think to, you know, to, to engage in this kind of work, it requires a certain sort of hope and, 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 a, and a, a sense that some, some good can come, that we can all be part of the solution. And um, local communities, what do they want? They, they, they want long-term sustainability. They want their children to be able to enjoy the same access to the forest resources that, 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 that they've had, for example. Um, and I think, you know, as, as you mentioned back to the recent U.S. election, to me, the most important thing about that is after four years of, of the world seeing, um, you know, what might be called the world's greatest democracy, really, really turn its back on the rule of law. Um, now, now, now we have the opportunity for a reemergence of the rule of law. And it's so important to everything that we do from the very local level with communities, you know, creating their own management systems to national laws that provide communities to have benefit sharing agreements and so on up to the international level um, with, with, the, with the Convention on Biodiversity and, and, and COP26 uh, next year. Um, these, are, these are important legal instruments. And there needs to be a certain understanding and respect for the law as the essential instrument that it is. And I think that's the most important thing that the Biden administration will be able to provide. And perhaps we might convince our own government about the importance of the rule of law, because they certainly seem to be disregarding it in many cases. And we've been talking a lot about a global problem here. And obviously, you know, we've been talking about those forests that are so important for us as a whole planet. But but to bring it closer to home and what sorts of things do you think that perhaps listeners in the UK could be doing to support, you know, um, reforestation and preserving the, our more natural landscape? I mean, I, do you get involved in, in local UK-based issues? I mean, I'm thinking about, you know, the Sheffield trees and there've been a number of incidents, haven't there? And certainly HS2, which we mentioned at the beginning. Is that something that, that Client Earth will be involved in? And if not, what can local people, how can local people get the kind of support you're providing to those indigenous communities the other side of the globe? Yeah, I think a lot of our work at the moment is focused um, in West Africa. Um, and we are looking for opportunities to expand our work, given the very global nature of deforestation at the moment. Um, I think an important thing that people can keep in mind is, you know, what projects are people supporting through where they're investing is an important thing that people can think about. Um, you know, we saw a report recently that, you know, $2.6 trillion was funneled towards projects that resulted in deforestation and significant biodiversity loss. People That's kind of pension fund money and things, is it? Or Exactly. Yes. So if people can kind of have a look a bit more closely at what their money is actually supporting, you know, on the ground, then I think that that's a significant step that, you know, really needs to change at this point. Um, in addition, you know, I think 
making sure that these environmental issues remain on the political agenda is very important. Um, yeah, as Brian said, if working in this area, you really need to retain that hope and that optimism that you know things can change. We can turn the tide on these very grim statistics that we're seeing. And so, yeah, making sure that environmental matters remain on the political agenda is important because I think leaders' environmental records will become a metric of their success. Um, and I think that that's a very important progression in terms of you know, developing the legal frameworks that we need to protect these areas. Yeah, the economic shifts that we need to see in terms of how things are structured to protect biodiversity more effectively and yeah, social attitudes as well. What about closer to home, Brian? Are there things that Plant Earth can do to support some of those kind of local projects where people might be campaigning to save their ancient oaks or pre prevent you know, uh, deforestation or even just taking down just a, a, a local copse of trees? Yeah, I mean, our work, you know, th th there's, there, there, there's a reason that the majority of our work is focused, let's say, on these, on these forest and biodiversity hotspots, you know, West and Central Africa. Um, we're developing a Brazil strategy um, and, and, and expanding our efforts into Southeast Asia. I mean, these, these, these are key, you know, biodiversity and carbon sink hotspots. But on the more local level in Europe, um, we do have programs that are particularly more focused on, on Eastern Europe countries where there is a lot of um, logging going on. And it's very important to make sure that all of the timber coming into both the UK and the EU does so legally. Um, making sure that that legal framework is robust, making sure that it is properly enforced and so on. And I think this is where consumers have a very important role to play. You know, when it's time to buy that piece of furniture, when you're walking down the aisle in the supermarket, for example, um, you know, we all have many choices that we make day in, day out. Um, so, so we're working to make sure that the legal frameworks uh, make it clear that, that companies need to ensure that their supply chains coming from forested countries, bringing in the soy, bringing in the palm, et cetera, and so forth, that those supply chains are free of deforestation. Um, and consumers, you know, the voting public in the UK and the EU has a very important role to play in that. It's important to speak up and say that that's a priority for me. I believe that companies should exercise the due diligence in order to make sure that their supply chains are, 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 are you know, deforestation free. Uh, so, so, you know, you can say, what, what's the old expression? You know, the world is run by those who show up. Um, and for those of us who, who, who believe in these issues, um, we need to think about these global issues and act locally when, when we vote, um, act locally when we shop, um, and when we also you know, are involved in our local activism issues, um, do what we can to preserve those trees that are right around us in our immediate neighborhoods as well. Absolutely. And of course, you know, to be fair, you don't just work with trees, do you? Plant Earth's got campaigns running around air pollution, which we've talked to colleagues about before, and, and you know, fish stocks, and also um, crucially around plastics, which is something that people can take, you know, immediate action on very, very quickly and locally. It's been fascinating talking to you. And I do feel um, reassured that you're, you're, you're out there on our behalf for those of us who, who want to support Plant Earth. Obviously, you know, visit your website and find out how to get more involved. But really important that we've got you, Babette and Brian leading the teams out there and making such a difference not just to those communities that need our support but also to those very precious and special wild places so Babette Brian thank you so much for joining Planet Pod it's been really fascinating to talk to you and great to meet you both it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you thanks so much thank you so much Amanda it's been great speaking with you
And uh, listeners, if you want to find out more about Client Earth, do visit their website. It's a wealth of resources. And of course, there's any young lawyers out there. It sounded like they were recruiting. So get your applications in fast. Um, yes, please do. Yes. <laughs> please do. Yeah. Join Client Earth. They are a fantastic organization. Thank you both. Thank you to, to our listeners. You've been listening to Planet Pod. Do follow us on Instagram or Twitter or visit our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can download previous episodes. Why not make life easy for yourself and subscribe either via the website or on your podcast app? And then we just drop into your inbox regularly. If you get a moment to review and rate the program, please do so, because that really helps have your feedback. And don't forget to get in touch if you've got any comments or suggestions or actions you want us to take. Thank you for listening and goodbye. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Haywood, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners, without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programs. Thanks for listening.